For the longest time, when people thought of Boston Harbor, they probably thought of the Boston Tea Party. You know, the Revolution-era protest where colonists broke onto a British ship and threw a bunch of tea overboard. But for most of the 20th century, when Bostonians thought of the harbor, they thought of sewage and non-caffeinated trash. On many days, the flow of sewage and industrial waste into the harbor exceeds that of fresh water. There was even a mucky layer of waste at the bottom of the water that people called black mayonnaise. The water was so totally disgusting that pollution became a cultural icon, immortalized by the 60s rock band The Standells. In 1988, George H.W. Bush was running for president against Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis. Bush visited the harbor, and afterwards, his ads dealt a knockout blow to the Dukakis campaign. Candidate Michael Dukakis called Boston Harbor an open sewer. As governor, he had the opportunity to do something about it, but chose not to. Because of a really outdated system, Boston was pumping pretty minimally treated human waste directly into the harbor. When it rained, that system could be completely overwhelmed, and something had to be done. In quintessentially American form, that something was a lawsuit. The Environmental Protection Agency joined several other parties and sued the Massachusetts Water Authority into submission. By the end of the fracas, Boston had no choice but to purify its dirty water. And after many, many meetings, the city came up with an ambitious solution. The plan was a $3 billion sewage treatment facility located on an island in Boston Harbor called Deer Island. Here is Doug McDonald, the then executive director of the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority, or MWRA. Deer Island lies on the fringe of Boston Harbor, a little distance from downtown. You can see it from downtown. And over the centuries, it had been used like a lot of places as kind of a dumping ground. Gosh, it had been everything from an internment camp and under a shameful set of circumstances in in Indian wars in the late 17th century. It had been used as a quarantine station during immigration. Deer Island represented the best shot at a clean harbor. It could save the people of Boston from their very own waste. Now, it had some considerable logistic issues, one of which was it was quite a long distance from where people flush their toilets, which is where the sewage was coming from. But the real challenge of the project came from the final stage, a nine and a half mile long tunnel deep under the ocean bedrock. The sewage water would be treated ahead of time and then pumped into this undersea tunnel. At the very end of the tunnel, that treated wastewater would be harmlessly dispersed far out into Massachusetts Bay. So, step one, build a plant to treat the sewage. Step two, build a tunnel that takes the treated wastewater far into the ocean. It sounds simple, but when the insurance companies reviewed plans for the tunnel, they estimated that building it would cost one worker death for each of the nine plus miles. The tunnel, though, was the best solution to clean up Boston Harbor, and the government had no choice. After the break, workers start digging a dead end deep under the ocean floor. From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Joe Hawthorne, and you're listening to Eclipsed, 
For the next month, we've got a story for you about a high-stakes mission to clean up Boston Harbor. Cleaning up the waterfront was a massive undertaking, with deadly consequences for some of the workers involved. So this is a story about survival in treacherous conditions. It's about the workers who made it, and the ones who didn't. And it's also the story of a city faced with a near-impossible problem, a problem it had no choice but to solve. This is the first in our three-part series on the disaster at Deer Island. This is episode one, The Tunnel to Nowhere. As a producer, I'm always looking for eclipsed ideas. Last year when I was on vacation in Cape Cod, I was in an antique store when I came across this book called Trapped Under the Sea by Neil Swidey. In the book, Swidey describes an unbelievable sanitation project. I couldn't stop thinking about it. For the rest of my vacation, I was looking up articles about wastewater and talking sewage with locals and with my patient girlfriend. And eventually, this got me and Bijan traveling up to Boston to investigate even further. But first, we had to talk to Doug McDonald, a man who helped get this project off the ground. McDonald lives in Seattle now, and like any good infrastructure expert, he spends much of his time on a vendetta against e-scooters. So when you see a scooter, think of me in retirement, ragging on the Department of Transportation about the utter stupidity of these scooters. He put that aside, though, to talk with us about his old passion for sewage treatment facilities. The kind of urban infrastructure that we need to sustain modern cities, it was more fascinating than most of the things you do on a daily basis. Back in the 90s, McDonald's job was kind of like water and sewage CEO. He managed the engineers, the laborers, and the public relations. He wasn't one of the guys who put on a hard hat. But when the workers were digging this tunnel under Boston Harbor, he just had to get a look. An important thing to understand about this tunnel is that it's underwater, but it's not in the water. It's actually being dug into the bedrock more than 400 feet beneath the ocean floor. And after nine and a half miles, the tunnel would just stop. That's as far as it needed to go to diffuse the sewage. It was the longest tunnel ever built that never went anywhere. McDonald is facing a lot of pressure, and construction is taking longer than planned. He needs to understand what's going on down there, and he's just plain curious. So one night, Doug decides to join the graveyard shift, go with the workers toiling into the evening. You were always confronted with the notion that you were quite a long way from home because you'd gone down this 400-foot shaft and then you were out into the bowels of the earth and the bowels of the earth was very, very dark and very much a non-human world. Above your head, there's 120 feet of rock and above that, there's 200 feet of ocean. So there's McDonald, this bureaucrat down there with laborers half his age. Very skilled laborers, I should add. These union guys who dig the tunnel are known as sand hogs. Doug is so excited he has to get involved. He sees a sand hog who's built like a defensive lineman, working a double jackhammer. That's like an anti-gravity jackhammer. 
It's got a hydraulic brace that allows you to hold the jackhammer sideways or upside down and punch holes in the wall or ceiling. So I'm watching this guy and he's running this thing and he's putting these holes in the wall. He says, you want to try it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll, I'll do anything. So he shows me how to hold this thing and he said, okay, yeah, let, her, let her go. And I drilled about two of these damn holes and it probably took me eight minutes. It was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. The Sandhogs end up giving McDonald an honorary union card for his efforts. And McDonald comes away with an even deeper respect for the workers risking their lives in this tunnel. And they were very much risking their lives. Remember, the insurance companies calculated a death every mile. And because this tunnel was so long and so far underneath the earth, the workers couldn't survive down there without a complex life support system. In that tunnel, there has to be air pumped in and there has to be water pumped in. And if you're doing construction, there has to be compressed air for the machinery. And in a tunnel which leaks, not because the seawater leaked in, but because there's actually trapped groundwater in the rock itself, water has to be pumped out. The mining operation of the machine is supported by a huge investment of pipes and electricity. And the thing runs on an extension cord, basically. All this infrastructure isn't just making the work possible. It's literally keeping the workers alive during their shifts. It's a huge underground ecosystem. There's a railroad that takes sand hogs in and out of the tunnel. There's a giant digging machine, the tip of the spear, that drills deeper and deeper into the bedrock. And there's a constant stream of workers lining the walls with concrete and lighting. Construction is relatively safe, but over the years, Three men are still killed and more are injured. By the late 90s, the tunnel to nowhere is complete, and it's time to disassemble the whole infrastructure. Workers remove the oxygen system, the lights, the railroad, everything. Except the giant drilling machine. That stays in the tunnel, because there's no way to get it out. It's a sacrifice to the construction gods. The tunnel, which had been a working environment, essentially became a dead air nine mile chamber. The oxygen was depleted. So if you had had an oxygen meter, as if you'd gone into a manhole, it would have read way, way below the necessary oxygen level to sustain life. Which is a problem because there's still work to be done in the tunnel. At this point, it's worth explaining in a bit more detail why this tunnel was the key feature of the plan to clean up Boston Harbor. Remember, the tunnel is actually hundreds of feet underneath Boston Harbor, deep in the bedrock beneath the ocean floor. So how does this tunnel diffuse the treated sewage into the ocean? This is done by a series of pipes, like straws, that pierce through the bedrock into the tunnel, connecting it to the water. And back when there were workers, these pipes had the potential to kill everyone. If anything should have happened to that cap on the top of them after they were installed, the sea would have flooded the tunnel very quickly, and had workers been in the tunnel, it would have been a catastrophe. Now, thankfully, those plugs have done their job. The tunnel never flooded during construction. And the tunnel never flooded while the workers were finishing up taking electrical wires and railroad ties and all the other infrastructure out by hand. Catastrophe avoided. 
The workers are all safe. But because of a contract dispute between the construction team and the government, the plugs were still in there. And the $3 billion Deer Island facility is pretty much useless if those plugs remain in place. Basically, you were, you were valuing one kind of catastrophe against another kind of impossibility, which was how the heck were you going to get these things out? And so the idea was nine miles from civilization at the end of this dark, lonely tunnel where these 51 plugs had to be retrieved. Technically, it's 55 plugs. But the point is, McDonald needed something like an astronaut. Someone who could go into the airless expanse of the tunnel, nine miles from civilization, and take care of the job. Astronauts aren't available for obvious reasons. But there are operatives trained to enter dangerous environments without breathable oxygen. Scuba divers. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In the 90s, commercial diver DJ Gillis was known as something of a party boy. It was normal behavior for me to be getting dropped off on these job sites by some blonde or brunette I'd met the night before. And I'd get dropped off on a, I mean, a nasty-ass construction site. And I'd be wearing dress slacks and shoes and a white shirt. And uh, I'd be tiptoeing past nails and burning shit and chemicals and everything else and trying to get into the dive shack and get all my dive gear on. And then go jump in the water. And the first thing I do when I hit the bottom, I'd promptly go to sleep. You know, I'd lay right down. It was nice and cool down there. I'm hung over like a son of a bitch. Crack the valve on the helmet and it's blowing bubbles. And I'm just like sleeping away, boy, feeling wonderful. DJ got into diving for the lifestyle. He was barely out of high school when he saw a picture of a commercial diver in a magazine. And I thought he was the baddest looking dude in the block. You know, just, I thought all the gear was cool. Just like a kid thinks a spaceman is cool, right? DJ graduated commercial diving school in the Gulf of Mexico, worked for a bit, and then came back to be near family in Boston. Now, in order to be a commercial diver in Boston, you need to be a member of the Pile Drivers Union. And DJ earned his keep doing work in the polluted waters of Boston Harbor. My first dive in there, you know, I hit the bottom and it felt like nothing I'd ever felt before. It was like, <clears throat> and the best way to describe it was like black mayonnaise. You'd have to strip down right there and there's a guy hosing you down. You stripped down butt naked and you had your uh, soap and you washed yourself off. Despite the filth, this was a pretty cushy gig. Commercial diving work isn't always steady but this offers regular hours and good pay. And, despite a lot of extracurricular activities, DJ is very good at his job. He gets in with the union and continues to work steadily after that. He's working on another big project when he gets a call from an old friend named Tap Taylor. 
Taylor has his own commercial diving company, Black Dog Diving. And I get a call from Tap Taylor and he says, DJ, listen, I've got a job and I, I need some more guys. And do you know anybody that's not working? And I says, no, Tap, I don't. He says, what about you? He goes, DJ, I, I really, I need you. We're going to be going 450 feet below the ocean floor and we're going out nine and a half miles. It's never been done before. DJ doesn't need this job, but he's intrigued by the prospect of an adventure. After all, he wants to be the baddest dude on the block. Plus, it's a chance to help out a friend. The mission promised to be complex and therefore lucrative. The more DJ heard about this waterless ocean project, the more he was enticed. In a way, we were even questioning, like, is this even diving? That's next on Eclipsed. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. This week, it's hosted by me, Joe Hawthorne, and written by Michael Canyon-Meyer. We're produced by Lynn Gerbig, Joe Hawthorne, and Tanita Rahmani. Special thanks to DJ Gillis, Donald Hosford, Lorraine Jones, and Doug McDonald for sharing their time and experience. Thanks to Rhea Convery and David Deust for showing us the modern Deer Island facility and explaining in great detail how everything works. And a big thank you to author Neil Swidey. His book, Trapped Under the Sea, One Engineering Marvel, Five Men in a Disaster, Ten Miles into the Darkness, was very helpful in reporting this series. If you'd like to learn more, I highly recommend checking out his book. Archival research by Caitlin Rathy. We're fact-checked by Alex Yavlon. Our engineers are Garrett Tiedemann and Ewan Lai Tremuen. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are Bijan Steven and Michael Partyboy Canyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com or tweet at us at eclipsedpod or send us a text or 917-810-3294. Thanks for listening. See you next time.